This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, our research and production team did a deep dive into the show's archive to pull out some of our favorite moments from the past six seasons of the show. We listened to hours of conversation from some of our most popular episodes to bring you what we are calling a technically human meta episode that features some of our most memorable ideas, topics that have become key to the growing conversation about the relationship between humans and the technologies that we create. If you're new to the show, This episode will give you a sense of the podcast history and how we are thinking about the intersection of ethics and tech. We hope you like the show. Enjoy. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Ryan Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is an associate professor of philosophy and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Emerging Sciences Group at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. He studies the ethics of emerging technologies, especially automation, cyber war, autonomous weapons, and driverless cars. His work has appeared in journals such as Ethical Theory and Moral Practice, and the Journal of Military Ethics, as well as public fora, including the Washington Post, Slate, and Forbes. Why do you think ethics is so important to the practice of technology in the first place? Well, I think that if you want to use a traditional definition of ethics, ethics is something like the search for how to live well. Um, there's a great, it's a great line from Republic, uh, book one of a uh, book one or two of Republic, where Socrates says, um, you know, let's be careful here because we are talking about no small matter, but we're talking about how we ought to live, and so ethics is that that broad general search that human beings have engaged in throughout. Uh, every culture, as, as long as there have been modern humans, about how to live well. And even though we think of technology as something relatively recent, you know, when I ask my students to name some pieces of technology, they they go to their phones and their computers and so on. But technology is, is much older than that. And the the project of developing technologies is deeply bound up with our search for a better life. In fact, I don't think they've ever been separate. I think this is the reason why people create technologies and why they place their faith in technology, because they think that they'll make uh, human life better. They'll improve the world and they'll improve our ways of living. So ethics and technology, rather than being separate spheres, I think that they're, they're really deeply connected. I want to just acknowledge the fact that the word technology comes from Greek techne, which means craft or art or to make, uh, which I find is fascinating. And it really brings us into a deeper understanding, I think, of the relationship between what we would classically call the humanities and what we classically call the technological branch. And, you know, it's so interesting. I find that humanists are increasingly interested in and concerned about the ethics of technology. But do you find that technologists are equally interested in and concerned about humanistic practices, ideas, and concepts? You know, I, I, I do find that it's, uh, they're increasingly interested in such things. I would not say yet that they are equally interested, that their interest 
uh, equals the interest, the, the sort of converse interest that humanists express in technology. I don't think that uh, you could say the same thing the other way around. I do find that somewhat regrettable, but there's cause for optimism because, like I said, I think their interest is increasing. Um, but for a long time, we've had in in America, in the Western world, we've had the the so-called two cultures, the divide between the humanistic cultures and engineering and science and technology. And they're, they're very different ways of approaching the world. But my hunch is that... Uh, the humanists have always been more interested in technology and the technologists have been, I think, more confident in the, the um, productivity or the fecundity of their way of approaching the world. Um, and so I think that they've, they've been skeptical of what the humanistic arts have to offer them. Uh, that's my sense, but I don't want to be unfair to them either because there is a good amount of interest that's coming out of technology and engineering. I'm teaching a course right now on ethical technology. We're studying the idea of the good. We just read uh, Plato. We read Aristotle. And we're looking specifically to think about how these ideas of the good have or bear a relationship to tech. Of course, philosophers have had many ideas about this. And philosophical traditions have had many disputes about the definition of that term, the good. So what is the good? The good is whatever makes life valuable. It's uh, whatever it is that's worth having for its own sake. It's the, the kind of thing that has intrinsic value or non-instrumental value. So the reason that we pursue it is not because it helps us get something else, but because it makes our lives better or worth living, or it contributes value to the universe uh, just in its own sake, just because it exists. And um, as you said, there have been there have been lots of different ways of approaching this question and lots of different candidate answers. And um, you'd probably find as many answers as you would philosophers throughout history, but you can divide them into some, some pretty broad camps. Um, one of these camps says that the good is basically pleasure. And uh, that group of philosophers, hedonists, goes back to um, Epicurus, at least, if not people before him, You'd find some other ancients that say that the good life is something like um, tranquility or peace of mind, um, ataraxia. So the Stoics would say that. Um, I'm really sympathetic to the Stoics as well. Um, but that view can also seem kind of impoverished. So you have some other views that stand opposed to that. Uh, the deontologists would say what makes the, the world good is a good will or good intentions um, and morally valuable behavior that's done from a sense of duty towards other human beings. So a, a kind of deep and abiding respect for the dignity of human beings is what makes the world good. And actions that follow from that respect make the world good. Um, and the most sort of heterogeneous view would come from uh, people like Aristotle and people that follow in Aristotle's footsteps that would say, well, there's a, there's a collection of things that are all good, and they can't be reduced down to a single currency in the way that the hedonists would reduce everything down to pleasure or happiness. So people like Aristotle would say um, cultivating a, a, a flourishing human life, a virtuous human life, and cultivating all of the human capacities, all the separate human capacities, capacities for fellowship, but also um, intellect, generosity, empathy, and so on. Uh, that's what makes life really worth living. 
Um, and I, I'm drawn to that. You know, I, it's, it's difficult because I don't have a really thoroughly worked out view myself. I think the good news is that a lot of these views, most of these views would generally agree about uh, the mid-level principles. So all of them are going to say that it's worthwhile uh, having close personal friends, or you should treat your friends well. But they're going to disagree about why you should do that. Um, you can delve into the, the depths of those theories if you wanted to understand uh, why they say that. But the good news is at the general level, the advice that they give often overlaps. And so I think we're in a pretty good position if we want to understand uh, the best ways to live or the, the right things to do. Of course, there are places where they disagree, but for the most part, I, th I think they, they would give us advice that um, is roughly consonant with one another. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Arthur Kaplan. Professor Arthur L. Kaplan is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Professor at the NYU School of Medicine in New York City. He is also the founding head of NYU's Division of Medical Ethics. He has published over 725 papers in peer-reviewed journals and authored or edited 35 books, including his most recent works, The Ethics of Sport, published by Oxford University Press in 2016 with Brendan Parent, and Vaccination Ethics and Policy, published by MIT Press in 2017 with Jason Schwartz. He has chaired the National Cancer Institute Biobanking Ethics Working Group, the Advisory Committee to the United Nations on Human Cloning, and the Advisory Committee to the Department of Health and Human Services on Blood Safety and Availability. Dr. Kaplan is currently the Ethics Advisor to the U.S. Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency on Synthetic Biology, and he also advises the Ethics and Ebola Working Group of the World Health Organization. In the context of the COVID-19 epidemic, which is posing some of the most urgent ethical questions of our time, Dr. Kaplan is advising the U.S. Conference of Mayors on Reopening Sports, Recreation, and Camps, and he is advising the World Health Organization on the compassionate use of novel drugs and vaccines. How has the field of medical ethics changed since you started working in it? And what kind of new bioethical issues should we be paying attention to? Well, when I started, there wasn't any field. This was kind of odd. There were people interested. There were just emerging two think tanks, one called the Hastings Center, which was located north of New York City, about 15 miles on the Hudson River, <laughs> and one called the Kennedy Institute, which was part of Georgetown University and actually part of its philosophy department. And uh, both were gathering spots for people from different areas, law, theology, nursing, medicine, humanities, to talk to each other about emerging issues at that time in bioethics. Probably the big ones at that time, abortion, which has not gone away, but was more of an ethics issue at that time. Now it's a political one. People rarely argue the ethics of abortion except maybe in a classroom, but out in the real world, they're just counting votes. Believe it or not, another big issue was rationing. We certainly hear about it again and again, but at that time, a new technology, dialysis, a machine to clean your blood, if your kidneys fail, was just coming in and people were arguing about who to give it to because they didn't have many machines. So that was a hot topic. Definition of death, people were very concerned with new machines that you might maintain a heartbeat and breathing in a body for a long period of time, and yet the person's brain had stopped, was that dead? 
And so that issue, trying to understand what became known as brain death, was a big topic. And we were certainly interested in some things that may surprise listeners, which is, do you have to always tell the patient the truth? Which wasn't being done at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to tell them their diagnosis wasn't being done at the time. People, some doctors argued that if the diagnosis was a terminal cancer, you didn't tell the patient because you'd scare them. So we do that. And confidentiality, who could know your information, who couldn't, who you could tell about someone's perhaps stigmatized information if they've been sexually assaulted or they were psychiatrically in need of mental health. That whole area about how to manage who could know things was very hot as well. So those were some of the issues of the day. But right Breaking out were fields like genetics, just starting to raise its head, genetic testing, things like testing people for sickle cell disease, large groups of people, or Tay-Sachs disease, how do you enter into a community, offer testing so that you could prevent people who were carriers of these diseases from getting married, how do you counsel them, again, privacy, who's paying, just rearing their heads. So today, genetics is a huge area, bioethics. We see genetic testing of embryos. We see genetic testing of fetuses. We see people arguing about what is a genetic disease. Is deafness a disease? Is uh, albinism, uh, born without skin pigment, is that a disease or just a difference? We see people trying to genetically engineer diseases called gene therapy. We see people talking about engineering human embryos to make better babies, a sort of return to eugenics. So that's a huge topic area that was just an infant when I got into this back in the late 70s. And other areas that have emerged, obviously public health, the pandemic, but even before that, there were plenty of people arguing about do we force people to take measles shots if they want to send their kids to school? Do they have to vaccinate the kids? There are plenty of public health issues that came out of swine flu and avian flu and cholera. And bioethics have become much more international. When I started, it was American. That's who was talking. Now, people participating from all over the world. We have a World Congress of Bioethics. Other small features that changed. We have journals. We have encyclopedias. We have professorships. We have newsletters, blogs. None of that existed when I started. We had two places that you could kind of go to for a meeting. So it started out as a interdisciplinary area defined more by problems than by methods or skills, and then has now become a full-blown field where probably if you don't have a master's degree, you're not going to be accepted. I wanted to ask a question on the humanities side. A lot of people in the humanities are talking about post-humanism, which is a discourse intended to and interested in, among other things, the increasing ways in which we think about the nature of the human and what we think of as technology as increasingly Used. It's an exciting conversation. Is my mind mine biologically when so much of my memory is stored on my phone? Is my perception mine when it's filtered starting the first thing when I wake up through my contact lenses? Am I myself after I've had a heart transplant from another body? Are medical devices and techniques and technologies in a broader sense changing what it means to be human? And are these scientific and technological advancements changes in extent or fundamentally different in kind? Well, so far, I would argue they are changing our notion of personal identity. They're changing our notion of who we are, but they're degree-based so far, not kind. Mm -hmm. I've quite gotten to the point where I've made a change because I wear glasses or use eye drops 
or take an asthma inhaler or have an artificial knee where I can say, I don't recognize me anymore. Mm -hmm. The philosopher who used to write about this, the most Eric Parfit, who passed away not too long ago, tried to understand personal identity by sort of continuity of recognition of self over time, long periods of time. I can still, I think, identify with the little boy that I once was, although it's getting hazier, but it is part of my identity to the point where I don't think now as an adult, I'm a different human being, self, a person from the one I was at age six. But if I added capacities and abilities that made me radically different, I had, uh, you know, x-ray vision, and I could see for 2,000 miles, and I could remember in great detail every single thing that happened in the past hour, I think you can jump the shark there and start to become a different entity. Do I think that will happen to us? Yes. Do I think it's going to happen to us soon? No. <laughs> but it will happen. I mean, we will get the machine mind merger that will sort of threaten our understanding of who we are as a species, as who we are as homo sapiens. And that's, I think, both inevitable, challenging, interesting, and scary. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with George Estreich. George Estreich's publications include a book of poems, textbook illustrations of the human body, which won the Gorsline Prize from Cloudbank Books, the Oregon Book Award-winning memoir, The Shape of the Eye, and Fables and Futures, Biotechnology, Disability, and the Stories We Tell Ourselves, which NPR's Science Friday named a best science book of 2019. Estrike has also published prose in the New York Times, Salon, the American Medical Association Journal of Ethics, Tin House, Essay Daily, and McSweeney's Internet Tendency. He lives in Corvallis, Oregon with his family, where he teaches in Oregon State's MFA program in creative nonfiction. You can learn more about George's work at georgeestrike.com. When I teach ethical technology, I structure the course around science fiction because I have a theory that science fiction is part of the ecosystem of technological production. So many of our most important technological innovations are ones that were first imagined or conceived of in fictional contexts. And oftentimes, as I see it, technologists draw from what writers and filmmakers or, or artists imagine in order to conceptualize and then design what become our technological realities. And we as readers and consumers of those science fiction oftentimes imagine our own experiences with new science and technological innovations by framing them and understanding them in the narratives that we know. I'm thinking of the moment that you cite the brave new world of IVF, which of course references the selective breeding technologies and practices imagined in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And how amazing is it, by the way, that a dystopian novel should serve as the basis for proposing scientific and technological advancement? I could cite a million more examples here, but I cite these examples to demonstrate how frequently science fiction becomes embedded in our factual reality as ways to predict, to create, that they become these almost predictive technologies in and of themselves, these science fictions, I mean. I wanted to ask you how you understand this ecosystem between science fiction and science engineering, and how is this ecosystem of science fiction and engineering perhaps significant for the technologies engaged with disability? That is a great question. It's funny to look at science fiction from, you know, long ago, like from the original Star Trek, when like 
you know, a flip phone was the summit of achievement. From the book specifically, I wrote about uh, the Princeton biologist, Lee Silver. He had a book called Remaking Eden. And that book is interspersed with these kind of scenarios in which he imagines people uh, using future reproductive technologies. And he has this one uh, scene where a couple is looking at a computer and picking out attributes for their child. You know, what what do they want? You know, and so years later, he co-founded a company called Gene Peaks, which is based on looking at virtual children. So in, in that case, the you can trace a straight line between a, a sci-fi moment and an actual company that exists in the world. As a side note, I've taught many like science-oriented students over the years, and I've often gotten the sense from them that they think that science is real in the way that literature is not. That science and technology are real because they make real things happen and they're certain and literature is just like, you know, subjective and whatever you want. But the fact is that narrative is woven in from the beginning. You have to imagine a technology before you develop it as all of your examples show. So to me, it's partly about, you know, how do these disciplines stand in relation to each other? And to me, I see narrative as woven in. In terms of the things that I was writing about in the book, science fiction has a persuasive role to play, especially in the sort of the more extreme examples of uh, those advocating for human genetic modification. So a pretty standard and to me kind of tired trope is the idea that we'll start engineering ourselves and then we'll just keep on going. And at some point far distant in the galaxy, there will be these beings to whom we are as worms, you know, that they're, they'll have such unimaginably smart giant brains. It's almost as if like, we'll just keep building, adding rungs to the great chain of being and just keep going up and up and up and up. That's a science fiction moment. And it's a persuasive one. It's interesting to me, of course, that it's centered on intellect, which is the the core thread to me running from the age of eugenics to now. What's it trying to persuade us to do? It's part of a persuasive message that these technologies are powerful that they will continue to progress, like they they presuppose that you can keep on making beings that are smarter and smarter and smarter, um, that they'll work. It's part of a, a generally pro-enhancement narrative. Um, that said, that I think sci-fi has a huge role to play in critiquing technology as well. For example, the TV series Black Mirror, uh, the movie Ex Machina. I wrote a fair bit about the movie The Amazing Spider-Man which seems both kind of entranced by the possibilities of, um, of genetic engineering and at the same time to want to offer a warning. And in literature, you could look at George Saunders' short stories. I come to all of this from just this deeply pro-science and pro-technology standpoint. And that may sound weird from the cautionary note I tend to emphasize, but you know, my wife is a research scientist, my dad was an engineer. I believe in the possibilities of science to learn and teach us about the world, to explore it systematically, and I believe in the possibilities of technology to make it better. I'm just interested in what ideas about the human underlie all that effort. I'm thrilled to bring you an interview today with Jaron Lanier. 
A renaissance man for the 21st century, Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist, composer, artist, and author who writes on numerous topics including high technology business, the social impact of technology, the philosophy of consciousness and information, internet politics, and the future of humanism. He is the founder of the field of virtual reality, and after leaving Atari in 1985, he co-founded VPL Research Inc., the first company to sell VR goggles and wired glove. In the late 1990s, Linear worked on applications for Internet 2, and in the 2000s he was a visiting scholar at Silicon Graphics at various universities. In 2006 he began to work at Microsoft, and from 2009 on forward he has worked at Microsoft Research as the interdisciplinary scientist in a role called The Octopus, which stands for Office of the Chief Technology Officer Prime Unified Scientist. There was a really interesting moment in the history of Silicon Valley where I think tech became so lucrative that a lot of people who would have previously in a, in a different era gone to Wall Street came to Silicon Valley mm -hmm. instead. And I think that represented a real cultural shift, a pivot toward the particular financial outcomes of tech, a pivot that you've been very critical of, particularly in looking at the monetization of um, digital mm -hmm. culture. I'm not exactly sure when to say that happened, but it definitely mm -hmm. happened. Was there anything in the early days that led you to become concerned about the dangers of technology and the critic that you have frequently become or was it later? I started writing my critical essays, which are remarkably similar to what I'd write now around 92. So like in 92, I wrote an essay about how the way we're thinking about things, there could eventually be bots that swipe societies and throw elections, yeah, for instance, yeah. which is, you know, and the thing about that is lots of people have written prescient stuff and it, the question is whether it does any good. And I, my regret is that I think if I, as I think back, there were many instances when I was close enough to things happening that maybe if I'd screamed my head off more mm -hmm. or explained more clearly, maybe I could have done more to prevent what I view as just the deleterious outcomes that are threatening our survival, mm -hmm. you know, and I've gone back over that. And at the time, it felt like I was doing as much as I could. And it's, it's very hard to say, it's very mm -hmm. hard to go back and evaluate that. Did you feel like you had a cohort? You were talking about other people who were also presciently writing about this. Did you encounter other people who were concerned as well? If sure. not, what led you to become concerned or see things that perhaps the more utopian thinkers did not? I mean, I'd been critical of it from early on in my arguments with my mentor, Marvin Minsky, mm -hmm. uh, with whom I, I had, who I adored, you know, and treasure, but still had very strong disagreements with. I'd been kind of a contrarian and viewed as a bit of an apostate for a long time. But I would say by the time I decided to start publicly writing things, which would have been in the early 90s, I believe, well, 92, I know for sure, maybe there was some stuff that was earlier. Um, there were only a, a very small number of other people doing that. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of people skeptical of AI who were writing about it from that angle, which is really the same issue, just from a different angle. And, th and that included people like Terry Winograd from Stanford. And then there were people coming at it from the potential for abuse. And that included, so now I, I wasn't prepared for this. So I sometimes I have trouble recalling names, but the fellow who wrote uh, Silicon Snake Oil and then there were, uh, and there were a few others. I mean, I, I think at that time, the people actively writing skeptical stuff numbered four or five in total, something mm -hmm. like that. There just weren't a lot. I'm sure there were other people who were thinking it, but it was, it was really a very distant, it was very distant from the mainstream anywhere. And 
part of it, there's a, there's a thing that's hard to construct now, to reconstruct now, but there was a feeling at that time that a lot of societal elements had failed us. People distrusted the government. There had been a series of scandals that had just gone on forever and people were just, some of the information about how, just how bad our adventures in Southeast Asia had been during the Vietnam mm -hmm. War era were just coming out all those years later. And it, it started to become clear that really there were millions of people who died for no reason at our hand. And it was just very, it's very hard to accept. And, and I think uh, most Americans probably still don't even know about it because it's, it's hard to take in. And uh, there was a bunch of others. And then there were various reasons that we weren't th that happy with universities and we weren't that happy with the media and we weren't that happy with the press and we weren't that happy with, you know, things. but this one thing and, and capitalism seemed like it was experiencing market failures all over the place and communism had turned into this horror and every, you know, every honest person saw that there was just like, no, and uh, if you believed in like sort of spiritual movements or a bunch of gurus who were abusing their uh, disciples and that whole thing had just totally fallen apart. And if you believe that drugs would save everything, which some people had had, that was falling apart. Like, but the one thing, this tech, tech was the one thing everybody could believe in, whether you, you were from uh, what we now call red states or blue states or anything like tech is this future, it's this optimism, it's this thing. And so to criticize it felt like taking away a child's last toy or something, you know, it just felt, it felt so cruel to even do it. And so those of us who did, did it in a gingerly way. And I, like I said, I kind of regret that now, I, I think. But at any rate, that, yeah, that's how it was. And then um, further on into the 90s, some more people started to appear. And then of course, lately, there's a whole industry of tech critics. I mean, it's really, I almost, I mean, it's like, for some of the stuff I used to say, there's like 500 people lined up and many of them are, are excellent, you know, yeah. really, really excellent. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Todd Presner to talk about the ethics of the algorithm. Professor Presner is the chair of UCLA's Digital Humanities Program and the Ross Professor of Germanic Languages and Comparative Literature. Dr. Presner's work covers a broad swath of topics at the intersection of ethics, tech, and the humanities. From his book, Mobile Modernity, Germans, Jews, Trains, published by Columbia University Press in 2007, which maps German-Jewish intellectual history onto the development of the railway system, to Digital Humanities, published by MIT Press in 2012 and co-authored with Anne Burdick, Joanna Drucker, Peter Lunenfeld, and Jeffrey Schnapp, which proposes a critical theoretical exploration of the emerging field of digital humanities. From 2005 to 2015, he was the director of HyperCities, a collaborative digital mapping platform that explores the layered history of digital spaces. His book, based on the project, HyperCities, Thick Mapping in the Digital Humanities, Harvard University Press 2014, with David Shepard and Yo Kawano, explores digital mapping using the HyperCities project, which was awarded the Digital Media and Learning Prize by the MacArthur Foundation in 2008. He teaches and writes on a broad array of subjects from the digital humanities to the ethics of Holocaust representation. Since 2018, Professor Presner is the Associate Dean of Digital Innovation in the Division of the Humanities and the advisor to the Vice Chancellor of Research for the Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences Research at UCLA. Earlier, you know, you already identified one critique of the digital humanities by humanists, and that is that oftentimes what humanists 
thinking and humanist methodologies do is really focus on the individual, not the statistic, not the broad swaths. And oftentimes the individual gets lost in those kind of calculations that focus on the big swaths. The other critique that I continuously hear in the humanities about the technical turn is that it comes out of a kind of almost inferiority complex in the humanities to, and I'm using air quotes here, you can't see them, stay relevant. Where do you think that these critiques are coming from? And and what do you think that they tell us about the state of the humanities? The implication is that the humanities are, are either not relevant or on the on the border of relevancy. And I, I certainly don't don't share that. I think certainly given our present moment, I mean, the knowledge of historicity uh, is, is so important for just even imagining agency and, and action. I think, you know, what do the humanities bring and why do we need the humanities uh, at this moment? I think one is historical perspective. It's absolutely critical. One, a second is values, right? I mean, and these are values in terms of whether we're talking about democratic values, we're talking about uh, empathy, we're talking about ethics, we're talking about community, questions around sociality, questions around culture, questions around embodiment, right? Questions around race and gender and sexuality. These are all such a such a critical part of the lineage of, of what the humanities does. So, you know, I think of uh, gender studies, ethnic studies, critical race studies, you know, work that's been done. I mean, it's a labor studies, I would add as well. You know, work that's been done since the 1960s and 70s in very profound ways. And that needs to be brought together with how we think about technologies. Again, technologies are not, we can say they're disembodied, but ultimately, at, at their core, they're, they're created by human beings and, and for particular ends, and, and they do certain things and are often endowed with a certain kind of, certain amount of, of, of agency as well. So I would say the humanities are really quite relevant for any discussion uh, uh, about technology. And as soon as you cut the humanities out, I think you're in a, you know, a very dangerous, uh, a very dangerous place, precisely because you've, you've created a, a technified and, and really a disembodied understanding of, of how, you know, of how technologies can operate or how they do operate. Let me just say that, you know, as regard to the thinking about the humanities, you know, being, I would say, even more relevant. I mean, think about, I, I've tended to use that this is another hyper term, but uh, the term hyper object is a term that Timothy Morton had coined a number of years ago to talk about issues or projects that were simply just way bigger than what any one person or discipline could possibly deal with. So as an example, like, you know, environmental catastrophes, biodiversity loss, the Anthropocene, those are examples of, you know, there are issues that are so big and, and, and so profound that you know, you need the perspectives of many different disciplines to address them. You know, you need, you know, biologists and you need climate scientists, but you also need sociologists and you need humanists because the issues are so complex. Think of like the, another example would be like the, you know, mega city, you know, how, how does one study a city, right? You know, you could study it from a perspective of architecture or planning, I suppose, but that's only part of it because what about lived experience? What about sociologists? What about culture? What about you know song? What about uh, lived experiences? 
or, you know, I mean, the pandemic that we're currently in. I mean, we all know that this has a significant, as much as it's a medical and health crisis, it's also a social crisis and an economic crisis and a cultural crisis, right? And we already know how differentiated the effects of the crisis are on rural communities, of black and brown communities. We cannot approach these large-scale problems, whether it's, you know, megacities, the environment, uh, health, pandemic, in ways that are limited to just singular disciplines. Uh, we need, this is why we need the humanities together with the social sciences, together with policy fields, together with the hard sciences, together with the medical sciences. That to me is a way that the humanities are not only relevant, but that humanities can actually lead Right, the humanities, humanistic questions need to be at the forefront in how we're thinking about whether it's a response to the pandemic or the future of democracy or you know environmental catastrophe or megacities. I mean, if if the humanities are not really at the forefront here, not only is something very profound being left out, but often the solutions that are being found tend to be essentially not particularly human. <laughs> that is to say, they tend to be maybe engineering ones that, or ones that are technical, but they fail to understand the social specificity or the cultural specificity or the particular embodiment, uh, especially around issues of race and gender, that you know, are, are absolutely profoundly, profoundly part of, of the very you know, problems that we're looking at. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Morgan Ames. Professor Ames is an assistant adjunct professor in the School of Information and interim associate director of research for the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. And she is also affiliated with the Algorithmic Fairness and Opacity Working Group, the Center for Science, Technology, Society, and Policy, and the Berkeley Institute of Data Science. In her vast research portfolio, Professor Ames researches the ideological origins of inequality in the technological world with a focus on utopianism, childhood, and learning. The questions that drive her current projects concern the ways in which young people construct their identities with computers and how computers and the technology design practices that produce them shape the identities they construct. Her book, The Charisma Machine, The Life Death and Legacy of One Laptop Per Child, MIT Press 2019, draws on archival research and a seven-month ethnography in Paraguay to explore the cultural history, results, and legacy of the OLPC project, and what it tells us about the many other technology projects that draw on similar utopian ideas. Her next project extends the questions she asks in the Charisma Machine regarding the interaction between computers, ideology, and identity to explore the role that utopianism plays in discourses around childhood, education, and development in two geographically overlapping but culturally divided worlds, developer culture in the Silicon Valley, and the working class and immigrant communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. I wanted to ask you something that's been percolating in my mind, and that is I teach science fiction. And teaching science fiction has taught me that frequently utopian ideations particularly when they're envisioned by powerful leaders, often turn dystopian, particularly when aided or governed or developed by powerful tech culture and products. And that's the basic melody of Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World, Forster, The Machine Stops, 
a number of Gibson's novels, or more recently, Eggers is the Circle, which we talked about, in which a powerful Facebook, Google, Twitter conglomerate turns from a utopian attempt to know everything and to connect everyone, a very noble vision, into a destructive anti-democratic form of ultimate surveillance. What do you think that these fictional renderings of aspiring utopias do that make them so frequently teeter into total dystopias? Do you think that these fictions can teach us anything about the nature of moral visions, utopian and otherwise, especially in tech? I also love science fiction. I haven't taught as much with it, but I am a avid reader and think very deeply about it as a form of media. And I think the message that so often gets told in those utopia to dystopia stories is one of a disconnection from the everyday, right? They might have a particular ideal that holds up their utopian vision, a particular ideal of an orderly society, for example, or a particular ideal of connection and free expression. And when that actually gets articulated on the ground with, you know, vying interests and maybe a landscape of scarcity, that's when that utopian vision turns dystopic and becomes, you know, a tool for oppression and control. Of course, one thread through all of those is power and who wields it, who can hold it. And in stories, of course, it's easy to kind of write in a all-powerful society or an all-powerful kind of governing structure in society or an all-powerful technology, honestly, that can kind of enforce its will. You know, power in the real world is, of course, a lot more complicated, but I would argue that the tech world has long been fairly powerful. You know, they are very flush with capital. Increasingly, computer science has been taking over higher education. If you look at the percentage of students majoring in computer science in so many colleges, it's in some places a quarter, in some places a third, in some places a half of all students. It's just amazing how much that has influenced disciplines all across the board. And I look at that power coupled with the same kind of you know, naively idealistic stories that we hear about in science fiction as utopian. It's in some ways no wonder that it feels like we're living in a bit of a dystopia right now. And I think especially with coronavirus, with Black Lives Matter protesters, with the deep racial, obviously deep, deep racial inequities that have triggered all of those protests with environmental catastrophe, kind of lapping at the edges of so many of our realities. I only hope that sci-fi is useful as a tool not only for escapism, you know, the kind of high science fiction, the very technical sorts of stories that techies tend to be more drawn to possibly, but that it is a place to kind of grapple with some of the really messy consequences that these kinds of visions can have. Today I'm speaking with Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers is the author of The Circle, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. What is the what? A hologram for the king and the lifters, among many other books. He is the founder of McSweeney's, an independent publishing company based in San Francisco that produces books, a humor website, and a journal of new writing, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. McSweeney's also publishes Voice of Witness, a nonprofit book series that uses oral history to illuminate human rights crises around the world. There's one moment of extreme optimism that I found, one thing that seems to resist the circle's kind of totalizing view. And that comes very shortly after the scene with the shark. 
which is bordered by another scene in which May encounters a statue that has been newly acquired by the circle by a Chinese artist famous for dissident art. The novel describes the piece as 14 feet high, made of a thin and perfectly translucent form of plexiglass. Though most of the artist's previous work had been conceptual, this was representational, unmistakable. A massive hand as big as a car was reaching out from or through a rectangle, which most of us took to imply some sort of computer screen. The sculpture is titled Reaching Through for the Good of Humankind. When May asks a fellow circular what this sculpture means, her coworker replies, and this I thought was hilarious, well, I'm not an expert, but I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> He's trying to say that we need more ways to reach the screen, right? The artist has declined to speak for himself, we learn. So on the one hand, we have the shark, this out of control destructive force that's wreaking endless consumption and whose vehicle is an embodied form of total transparency that shows its grotesque appetite for that destruction. And on the other hand, we have this piece of art whose total opacity seems essential to the way it makes meaning. It is impenetrable, especially to the people who think that they can penetrate everything, that everything is transparent. In fact, the coworkers too easy reading of the sculpture renders the sculpture absolutely even more opaque. So irony might be the thing that data analysts can't grasp. It seems like art in the novel presents circulars with something that eludes the kind of interpretive faculties of dataism. Do you agree? How does art do this? Is art our last hope? I, you know, that, although they, you know, there is a museum on campus where the circulars are encouraged to put their rating, and that rating is always uh, slightly changing. So you might have The Last Supper getting an 88.1, and <laughs> if you want to get it up a little bit, you could go in with a bunch of friends and, and get it up to an 84.6. Um, <laughs> that's absolutely coming. I mean, there's just no way it's not coming if it's come to every other art form. But, um, you know, I, I wanted, in that scene, that's like, a, you know, it's based on Ai Weiwei that they commission. I mean, most of these tech companies are huge commissioners of art. Facebook has like a whole huge gallery of amazing art that they've commissioned. And I have so many friends that have created on-site, site-specific stuff for them. And so they're good patrons of very good art. But in this case, I wanted Ai Weiwei to sort of be tweaking them. They don't know. They, they're stuck with what he's given them. He's tickled by the idea that they would put this thing that he sees as nakedly critical and creepy in the middle of their campus and celebrating it and willfully misinterpreting it. And I, you know, I, I think I, I was an art student in college. And so I, I'm always going back to sort of that last bastion or what might be the last bastion of sort of enigmatic life, how, you know, it's so hard to even writing about art is like tap dancing about architecture. I don't know, that's an old comparison, but I like the, the way that it defies easy interpretation, or it seems to, but it doesn't stop people from wanting to, uh, to attach numbers to it. And, and again, I, we're heading there. And again, you've seen, you know, you don't see filmmakers really resisting Rotten Tomatoes which I think is a nakedly dystopian horror that would never see, you know, it would, it would horrify anyone a hundred years ago that 
that works of art had percentages, numerical percentages attached to them that sort of were seemed definitive and unchangeable. And that was the historical assessment of, of, of a work of art. It's undeniably horrifying, but we live with it and everybody has come to accept it. And I think that the fact that we don't see things like that the way we would have 50 years ago, you know, we've, we've eased into them, starting with stars and thumbs up and people clapping and all of these ridiculous little um, ways to, uh, to judge art. And now we have arrived at this sort of numerical percentage. Um, the fact that we accept it is just means, you know, we are the frogs that have slowly boiled in the pot. But I want to say before, before I uh, sign off, it's, I've been only negative here. And I do, what's so weird is that this is obviously a dystopian book and it's not super optimistic, but it's also a satire. It's also a farce. And I think, and you know, when I talk to college students and I've been down at Cal State San Luis Obispo uh, well, a lot of years ago for a different book, but I, you know, I'm always so encouraged when I talk to college students because one, they are generally aware of what's going on. Two, they feel like they have power. Three, they're open to exercising it. I think that consumers do have a lot of power. You don't have to work with so many of these companies. You do have options. Instead of using a search engine that follows you, you could use one like DuckDuckGo that doesn't. Instead of Facebook, you could use MeWe or a lot of these other social media platforms that don't that don't surveil you. There are always options. Welcome to a special episode of Technically Human, featuring Yael Eisenstadt in a live public conversation. This episode is part of a new and very ambitious research initiative at Cal Poly, supported by the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative and the National Science Foundation to explore the frontier of ethical technology work and to develop a new understanding of ethics and technology in the industry. There is no one better equipped to talk about this issue than Yael Eisenstadt, and we are thrilled to bring you this live conversation with questions from the Cal Poly community of students, faculty, and the public. Yael Eisenstadt is a former CIA officer, a former White House advisor, and the former global head of election integrity operations for a political advertising at Facebook. I know this is recent history, but for many of us, the last five years have felt a thousand years long. Take us back to 2016 and set the stage for us. What did you see in that moment? And, and how are you thinking about democracy in that moment, in the immediate aftermath of the election and the news that came out following? Sure. So again, remember that in 2013, I left a 14-year career as a public servant. And I had started that career off as a CIA officer, which is like for somebody who is this Californian sort of global thinker, you know, it's not something I talked about a lot or actually at all. But in 2015, just before the election, I started seeing this breakdown in discourse in the US. And I had spent my whole life focused on issues overseas as opposed to domestic issues. And I frankly saw what was happening in our rhetoric, in the way we were speaking to each other, in the way both the public and private conversations were happening as a bigger threat to our democracy than anything I had worked on previously. Um, and so I started speaking out in 2015, which was a complete 180 for me. I've always been behind the scenes. I'm, I've never been someone who wants to be in front of the microphone. 
But I wrote a piece in 2015. It, the title was super salacious at the time. And now we'd all be like, yeah, that's obvious. The title was American Hate is a Bigger Threat Than Foreign Terrorism. And it was really about what is happening here that is pitting Americans against each other so dramatically that I actually think we are being radicalized in a way that is way more dangerous to our democracy than, I mean, I spent my life working on counter-extremism issues, including along the Somalia border. And this was a bigger concern for me. So I started digging in into sort of what was causing all of this. And, and I'm sure you'll dig into that with some of the questions. So I, I don't wanna go on for 20 minutes here, but obviously, in addition to all sorts of societal issues in the US and all sorts of things that contributed to it, the information ecosystem and what was happening to it was very clearly a major part of what was exacerbating so much of what was happening. And uh, so I started speaking up at tech conferences, which was weird. I was like, not a technologist. And I started getting invited to speak about the importance of engaging with people who aren't like-minded and like all these things about discourse and, and, and what I thought the social media in particular, I don't blame social media for everything, but what was social media in particular doing to cause so much of this? And then fast forward, I'm not one of those people who will say that I know that Facebook is the reason Trump was elected. I, I think, I don't know that anybody can prove whether or not that's true, but I certainly know that the company, others as well, but Facebook in particular, did provide tools to political operatives, including from other countries, as we all know, to not just interfere in our election, but interfere in how Americans view each other. And I don't think there's been a reckoning at all for that. I do think we're sort of in an environment where they say, we're sorry, we'll do better, and then we move on. So I would still like a reckoning in general for many things that have happened in the social media world. But I do think 2016 was a wake-up call for many people. And yes, some people will say it was just a wake-up call for people who didn't want Trump to be elected. That's true. But for some of us, we had already woken up to this before the election. It's a wake-up call to how these companies were actually affecting our democracy. Here's a question about what happened next. You, you went to Facebook in, in 2018, presumably after you had already started speaking out. What did you hope to accomplish when you were there? And you, know, you left six months later. What were those six months while you were there like? What made you decide to leave? When they reached out to me, uh, we started speaking about actually a different role than I ended up going in for. But after a series of conversations with recruiters and Facebook leaders, I knew, listen, I'm not naive. I'd spent much of my career in the intelligence world. I didn't think I was going to go into Facebook and magically fix whatever problems were happening that were causing, again, it was really what I was concerned about was how we were being pitted against each other and how Americans, not, I mean, not just Americans, I was just focused on the U.S. in that moment, were being radicalized online. And I didn't think I would go in and fix everything, but I am the type of person when offered the opportunity to help steer a ship in a better direction on something that I fundamentally believed was one of the biggest threats to democracy, I had to say yes. So they made this offer in 2018, just after the Cambridge Analytica scandal became very publicly known and told me that I would be coming in to head a new team, focus on political advertising and really to grow and build a team to think about how to ensure that the advertising part of Facebook wasn't being manipulated to sway elections around the globe. I was responsible for not just the U.S. And that's a problem we can talk about later in this conversation. It's 
you want to dominate the entire globe. You want to scale to be a global company, but you can't think there's a one size fits all solution to every election around the world. And that's what Facebook wanted. They wanted me to just come give this like magical solution that would scale globally. So that's what I went in thinking. I also went in very clear. I told them I want to learn. I want to, I want to dig in. I want to see how we got here before I can start saying anything about how I think we should proceed. And unfortunately on day two, they changed my title and my responsibilities and all the things they told me I was there to do sort of fell apart. And on day two, you can't say I had already made a mistake. So it was the one question I can't answer because I don't know the answer to is why they hired me to begin with. But I certainly was never empowered to do the work that I was told I was there to do and and the reality is because what I wanted to do no matter what would end up slowing down the company and would end up chipping away at their business model and so they just wanted me to kind of help fix around the margins and not ever get to the core problems. Today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Julie Albright. Dr. Julie Albright is a sociologist specializing in digital culture and communications. She has a master's degree in social and systemic studies and a dual doctorate in sociology and marriage and family therapy. Dr. Albright is currently a lecturer in the departments of applied psychology and engineering at USC. Her research has focused on the growing intersection of technology and social and behavioral systems. She has appeared as an expert on national media, including the Today Show, CNN, NBC Nightly News, CBS, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, NPR Radio, and many others. She's the host of the podcast, Reset Salon. Her new book, Left to Their Own Devices, How Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream, published by Random House Prometheus Press, examines the impact of mobile, social, and digital technologies on society. Her forthcoming new project investigates our increasing reliance on digital infrastructure. There's a term that in your book struck me and was kind of connected to this idea of digital immersion, because on the one hand, we're more connected to one another through our devices and connected to our devices more than ever. But at the same time, you use this term I found so interesting called untethering. So we're connected newly in one way, and then we're untethered or disconnected in another way. What does being untethered in the way you talk about it mean? And what does it have to do with what we might describe as our new tether? our dependence on technological devices. Well, my book, Left to Their Own Devices, really the cornerstone concept is this notion of coming untethered. And what happened was my forte is to see connections between disparate things. I read voraciously and I try to sort of keep a finger on the pulse of what's going on and see patterns and trends very early on as they're emerging. And I started noticing across different fields from psychology, sociology, to business, to all the way to things like neuropsychiatry and communication, all these disparate studies coming out. But I realized that they are all captured under this umbrella term or notion of coming untethered. And what I mean by that is, if I put my sociology hat on, It's this idea that young people in particular, these digital natives, are unhooking from traditional social structures. You could think about getting married or 
joining a church or starting a family with children or these kinds of things that their parents or grandparents might have done routinely. Young people are unhooking from these kinds of behaviors. And at the same time, they're hyper attached to digital technologies. And so this is this combination of behaviors that if we look back at some of the foundational studies in sociology, what we find is that being anchored within these social institutions, they sort of bolster physical and mental health. And so that was part of my motivation driving me. As I said, I I have a master's and PhD in counseling as well as master's and PhD in sociology. So I saw this welling up of mental health issues going on at my university And it turns out at universities across the country, we're seeing the highest rates of things like anxiety and depression that we've seen in 30 years. And that concerned me. And I said to myself, behavior is driven by something. It doesn't come out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. And I thought to myself, what what has changed from generations back? I can see the changes in my students to this generation of students. And that's when I started delving into, you know, what changed when and when did these things start happening? And we can track the beginning of the escalation of these sort of struggles amongst young people to the beginning of the cell phones and the social medias and things that they're so immersed in. Well, you know, it's interesting because just as you had your chair of your department say, what does digital connectivity have to do with the work of a sociologist? I get asked maybe almost the inverse question, which is what is a narrative and literary scholar doing looking at ethical technology? And I guess I want to push a little bit on this idea that you posit of the mythology of the American dream to talk about mythology more broadly and the role of mythology in thinking about or providing insight into digital connectivity, technology broadly. The American dream is what you have described as a mythology. And what what I would describe it as a mythology is a narrative that attempts to explain a dimension of the human condition or an attempt to really understand and define a group's experience, in this case, the American experience, through a kind of storytelling about an essential quality of that group. Now, as I said, I'm a literary scholar, so I'm particularly invested in the function of narrative and the significance of narrative narrative. And the link that you draw between myths and our behavior around tech is really interesting to me. So what role do you think that myths have to play in thinking about tech culture? Why should technologists think about and understand mythologies, broadly speaking? I'm not a historian, but I'm finding that understanding history and the context for behaviors is important and decontextualizing things, it sort of doesn't take into consideration what people are responding to in their environments. Why are they acting in the particular way? Myths have always driven behaviors. And you can go back to Claude Levi-Strauss and all these guys uh, throughout the whole idea of postmodernism and the stories that we tell ourselves. I mean, that's a whole part of counseling ideas as well, is that the stories we tell ourselves drive our behaviors and drive how we think about our lives, et cetera. So they're very important. So think about what we were just talking about, this sort of myth of the American dream. Prior to industrialization, we lived on farms. A lot of families had big families, lots of children, because they were farmhands. You know, they helped between gathering eggs, the boys would work side by side with their fathers, you know, tilling the fields and planting and harvesting and all this. You were sort of a self-contained unit 
at the time. Uh, production was at one with the household, with the family. But once we went through industrialization, people moved off farms. They moved toward cities where the manufacturing and where the new jobs were. Combined with that, and the reason why I'm tying it to mythology is we saw post into the 1900s, you know, the invention of the radio and, and the explosion later of television, we saw a big explosion in advertising. In other words, we needed consumers to buy this, all these goods, all these home appliances, the cars, you name it, what have you. We had to create these consumer Americans. And we did that by driving these mythologies. But this idea that we constructed these idealized notions of what it meant to be a family, what it meant to be a woman or a man, how you dressed, how you presented yourself, what you were supposed to be doing. Uh, I remember my mother, I said to her, she didn't seem like she was particularly motherly. And I said, why did you have kids? And she said, because that's what you did. Because that's what you did. You see, that's what all these people drove along, guided by these mythologies that people sort of bought into. And I will say that the variety of lifestyles at the time and who you could be and how you could express yourself who you could be in love with and who you could have a family with. All these sorts of things were very narrowly prescribed for people through these mythologies. And that, of course, has changed now in our new digital context. And we are back with a brand new season of Technically Human. To kick off the season, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you an interview with the incredible Dan Lyons. I am not going to skimp on this introduction because Dan Lyons is one of the most important thinkers influencing our understanding of Silicon Valley culture. He blends brilliance, insight, and humor, traits that led him to write and co-produce one of the most iconic shows about tech of our times, HBO's Silicon Valley. Dan Lyons is one of the best-known science and technology journalists in the United States. He was the technology editor at Newsweek, a staff writer at Forbes, and a columnist for Fortune magazine, while also contributing op-ed columns to the New York Times about the economics and culture of Silicon Valley. Over the past decade, Dan has given countless keynote addresses about technology and the modern workplace, including two lectures at the Royal Society for the Arts, or RSA, in London, a venue that attracts policymakers, investors, and thought leaders. Among thought leaders in tech, he is considered the expert on the culture of work and how it's changing businesses and lives. Dan has earned a reputation as a fearless critic of powerful interests in Silicon Valley, with a voice that sets him apart from the often fawning journalism that comes out of the technology space. He has been a vocal critic of racial, gender, and age bias in the technology industry, penning articles about bro culture, worker exploitation, and the hustle mentality that leads to employee burnout. He has become a leading advocate for greater diversity in the technology industry and an early critic of the dick economy for its abuse of workers. His work helped draw attention to the brutal working conditions in Amazon warehouses. Dan is a true visionary, a pioneer, a leader, and he's blisteringly funny. He's also a personal hero of mine. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And now, here's Dan. Until now, or up until this point, engineers or hackers would have just rushed headlong into, if we can do it, let's do it, and never stopped to even think about it, and then arrived at the problem of like, oh, wow, there are some 
negative connotations. So the idea is to get people thinking about this even before they create or as they create, think about the ethics of it. Sometimes CEOs will contact me and they'll ask me, well, how should I make my company ethical? And I say, I don't want to tell you what to do, but here's eight questions that I ask when I'm thinking about whether or not a product is ethical. And I give them that eight question list. And I think it's been really helpful, uh, at least from their perspective, to think about that. The eight questions are just for your reference and I'll send them to you too. Uh, One, who will be using this product as widely as possible, preferably, and how? Two, how well does this product translate across different cultures, communities, and subgroups? Uh, Three, what cultural sensitivities might or must this product navigate? Four, what harm could this product potentially cause? I don't think we're in charge of figuring out all of the spectrum of harm that a product could cause, but there's some reasonable, I think, guesswork that we could do to figure that out, and I think we're responsible for doing that guesswork. Uh, Five, what historical wrongs does this product address or encounter? Six, what populations might be made vulnerable through the use and distribution and possible misuse of this product? Uh, Seven, what good does this product enable? And I ask my students to not abstractly use the term good. I I talk to people when I talk to CEOs about not abstractly using the word good, because if we abstractly use the word good, you can use good to define uh, good as, you know, I actually make people's lives in the disability community better, or you could use good as, well, I actually generate more venture capital. So you want to define good in a very specific way. And then the last one is the one that I'm adamant about. How does this product engage with and cohere to factual reality? So in other words, if you have a product and you think your product is doing this, but all the evidence shows that it's actually doing that, then your product does not do this. It does that. But then you can abdicate all responsibility and say, yeah, the world is just, it's neither good nor bad. It's just, this is how it is. It's just evil. It's just raw. It's brutal, right? It's just And then you go, well, then why should I feel like I got to be any better? Like this is, there is no meaning to this. There is no, it's just, you know, you might get hit by a truck or you might not. One last question. You're a writer and talked a lot about ethical technology manifestos. What would you put in an ethical technology manifesto if you were writing satire? (laughs) That's an evil question because I'm not good at thinking on my feet. I'm the kind of person like four hours from now, I'm going to come up with it and be like, oh, that was it. So what would I say if I was writing satire and I was writing an ethical manifesto, if I was, I, I'm doing satire, I'm doing satire about someone who thinks they're very ethical, but they're really not. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, I you, first of all, yeah, you do cliches, like you said, and like they did in Silicon Valley, right. You'd have, you'd have empty, meaningless platitudes. I think you have ways that almost make you the victim or make you the hero, you know, like you would take child labor in China and turn it into like growth job creation, you know, things like that. I don't know. Four hours from now, I will email you a zinger. I promise you. We'll put that in the manifesto. Talk to me four hours from now. One quick note before we go. I am thrilled to join Cal Poly Center for Expressive Technologies for a talk by UC Berkeley's Dr. Morgan Ames on November 9th. Drawing from her forthcoming book, Morgan Ames will chronicle the life and legacy of the One Laptop Per Child project and explain why, despite its failures, the same utopian visions that inspired OLPC still motivate other projects trying to use technology to disrupt education and development. Dr. Ames will also discuss her recent work on inequalities and technology in California, which includes investigations of youth cultures, Minecraft, and a generational difference in programming origin stories. 
We are opening the virtual event up to the public, so join us. You can find information on our upcoming events page on www.etcalpoly.org. The event is sponsored by the National Science Foundation, which funds our Future of Work in Ethical Technology grant, along with the Center for Expressive Technologies and the Cal Poly English Department. That's November 9th at 4 p.m., and you can find more information on our website at www.etcalpoly.org.